here we are now with episode two, and this is really the beginning of our series. This is the series, Finding Other Worlds. This is a Chronicles commentary on Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So we just had the introduction, so if you haven't listened to the introduction episode, that was episode one, you can go back and listen to that for a bit of an overview and some ideas of our thesis for this series, or just some ideas, just some talking really. It's all just talking in a manner, but now we actually begin, now we're actually going to crack into the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, and this book is called The Magician's Nephew, and I think I think it might actually be my favorite book. I think it might be my favorite story out of out of almost all of them, all seven of the Narnia books. But we'll see. Maybe we'll just put it in the maybe category and we'll save until the end, which is my favorite. It's definitely a significant book, very significant, very foundational. Really, in this book, so much happens, and it contains all of the themes, all of the mechanics, all of the parameters, a whole variety of colorful dynamics that are related to finding other worlds. So listen carefully. There's really so much in this, and really... The theme to look out for, or one of the main themes to look out for, is worlds within worlds. So don't get this idea that finding other worlds is, we've got this world and then the other world. No, it's much more like that there are worlds within worlds within worlds, and they're all connected in different ways. It's not like it's up or down or here or there. It's all over the place, and you'll really get a sense of that as we go through this. Okay, so the opening of the Chronicles of Narnia begins in London. And a small boy is in the backyard of his little townhouse, and he's crying. He's upset. He's sad. And why is he crying? Why is he upset? Well, because he's just been forced to move to London. And he doesn't like it here very much. It's not a very nice place. It's gloomy. He doesn't have many friends. He doesn't get to do all the things that he did in his own place, in his old house. So he's quite upset. And not only that, but his father figure is off in a distant land. He's off in India fighting a war. So right off the bat, already we have three worlds. We have the world that the child was in. And he's been suddenly ripped from that into this new world, which is London. And his father is off in this distant land. I can't remember if it's actually his father or one of his uncles. His father figure, family member, someone important to him. And so that's three worlds already. And this is what the child is contending with. And this is Diggory. And Diggory is, well, he's our main protagonist. He's our central protagonist. He is the magician's nephew. So Diggory is crying and, well, the girl from next door pops her head over the fence and, well, tries to see what's happening. And they sort of look at each other and, talk to each other, and Diggory has a bit of a snide at her and says, well, isn't Polly a funny name? And she's like, well, Diggory's a funny name as well. Isn't it strange? And there's also this thing of, like, Diggory bringing up his resentment or distaste towards London. He says something about, oh, I don't really like it here. This whole place is a hole or something like this. And, And, well, Polly, well, she's been living here all her life, so she feels... Hey, this is a bit insulting. And already, 
We have the clash between two worlds. We have the things that Diggory is saying and his behaviours wearing off into his new relationship, his new friendship with this girl, Polly. How is it for someone to tell you, oh, where you live isn't very nice? It's quite insulting, really. And you wouldn't really know, would you? Unless you had something to contrast it with, unless you'd lived somewhere else. So there's a bit of tension. It's not exactly a blooming friendship between Polly and Diggory. They do become friends and they spend the holidays exploring around the place and looking around the different places in the house and also their neighbour's house and some of the other places around in the neighbourhood. And they get to exploring and they find out that there's this secret passage. Now, in this part of London, they have houses which are back up against each other, so the walls are... Sort of like townhouses, I guess you call them. I guess we call them... I've forgotten what we call them in Australia. We have a similar sort of thing in Australia. But they've found this passage, right? And they want to go check out some of the secret entrances. So Diggory and Polly start to calculating how they can go into this secret passage and along the backs of the house and find their way into a house which they believe is unoccupied. Of course, they're wondering, maybe it's a haunted house. Maybe there will be burglars there or homeless people. There's a sense of danger there. But they are quite curious. And that's another one of the characteristics which we find particularly in Diggory which really drives him to the places he finds himself. It's his curiosity. So keep that in mind about Diggory, that he's curious. And anyway, one day they find that they're calculating how to get to this hidden place and they go along the secret passage and they come out the door and they realise all of a sudden that they've calculated it wrong, and they're actually in Diggory's house. They haven't gone far enough. But not only that, they've found themselves in the attic with Diggory's uncle. And one of the strange things they notice, of course, about this attic is that it's furnished like a living room. It's sort of like a living den. And that's quite strange for an attic to be furnished as a living room, sort of like a secret hideaway place, almost like there's something not quite right about this place. So anyway, they come out the secret door and they're looking around and then all of a sudden, Uncle Andrew turns up. So the magician, or as we will soon find out, is Uncle Andrew, Diggory's uncle. The magician's nephew. This is the where the title of the story comes from. And Uncle Andrew, well, he's a little bit weird. I mean, there's been some things said about him. And the way Diggory thinks about him is that he's either mad or there's some other mystery about him. And that's how he puts it. There's either something very twisted about him or there's something about him. And maybe some of us have known an uncle like that, someone who's a bit strange, someone who's a bit quirky, a little bit eccentric, a little bit like, hmm, I'm not quite sure if he is the same as your regular version of adults. So they turn up, and Uncle Andrew, the first thing he does is lock the door. And before they get the chance, he also locks the secret door that they've come through. So now Diggory and Polly are in this room with Uncle Andrew and they're not quite sure what to do or what to say. And they think, well, we we better get going, right? It's almost dinner time. Let's just sorry say, sorry, we were just exploring, you know, this sort of thing. Let's get out of here. But Uncle Andrew, he has other plans. And he manages to 
show them something quite curious. And this is a little tray that has a number of rings on it. And these rings, there are two varieties. Some are colored yellow and some are colored green. And Polly, she takes quite an interest, particularly in these rings, because she can sense there's something about them, there's something funny about them. And while Diggory is just thinking, now, we've got to get out of here, why is this Uncle Andrew being so strange? Polly is offered one of the rings as a gift by Uncle Andrew. And she goes to take her ring, stretches out her hand, and the moment she touches it, she disappears. Pop. Straight out of thin air. And my goodness, what is Diggory to make of this? What on earth is happening here? Now, Uncle Andrew is not quite as surprised as Diggory, and he starts to explain what exactly is going on. And he's talking about all the sorts of magic that he has been researching, trying to find, trying to understand. And Uncle Andrew is explaining to Diggory, well, where these rings have come from. And apparently, there's a long history to this story. Uncle Andrew had a grandmother who, by his account, actually had fairy in her blood. She actually had magic ancestry in her blood. And he had inherited a secret box which she had told him he should never open. Now, this imagery comes up in mythological writing over and over again, which is basically Pandora's box. You know the story of Pandora's box, which is you open it up and everything comes out, and also not only the good things, but also the bad things. Well, this is the same image. It's the same poetic image happening here. And Uncle Andrew has basically worked out that in this box is a powder, and he's learnt how to turn those into rings, and he's been experimenting with the rings on how to get to another world. And he's even experimented on a guinea pig. Now, as Uncle Andrew is talking about all this, and also the other thing I'll mention is that this box that Uncle Andrew has inherited from his now long-deceased grandmother, we find out was originally from Atlantis. So Atlantis is another one of those sort of other world story archetype. Well, I, don't, I don't want to call it an archetype. I want to say that it's a... Uh, I mean, the story of Atlantis is one of those ones that is manifest in different ways. And it's a sort of story that's done again and again in different ways. But the idea of another world being in this world is, well, that's what's happening here. So this box is from another world. And the whole thing is that Uncle Andrew is sort of explaining this to Diggory as if it's like a science experiment, like his sort of game or something that he's doing. And Diggory is starting to actually get a bit angry because he's thinking, now, what what has happened to my friend? What has happened to Polly? She might be in danger. What has been going on with her? And you've trapped her in this other world with no other way of coming back. And this is where Uncle Andrew explains. Now, she's gone there because she touched the yellow ring. And the yellow ring will take you there, but the green ring will take you back. And this is now where the dilemma starts to dawn on Diggory. And he really actually starts to dislike Uncle Andrew because he realizes he's, he's in a bind, right? And Diggory says, well, you go get her. You go and get her from the other world and bring her back. This is your doing. And Uncle Andrew, well, he doesn't have a bar of it. He says, 
Well, I can easily just go on like nothing has ever happened. I can just forget the whole thing. But it's your friend. How will you live with explaining to her mother that she's disappeared forever? So, so damn, damn, Diggory's in this, he's in this bind, right? He's got to acquiesced to Uncle Andrew to go into this world with the green rings to help bring back Polly. And he has no idea what he's going to meet. He has no idea what the other world holds for him. And there's no other way out of it. It's not like he can just go down to dinner now, right? And he's feeling quite cheated about all this. He's feeling like you, you've manipulated me, you've took, taken advantage of me and my friend, and you're talking about, you know, first, first the guinea pig, now the, now the poor little girl, as if they're just sort of dispendable resources in his science experiment, in his magic experiment. So that's how Diggory ends up having his first encounter in another world, he agrees to do the work, go on the adventure reluctantly. And then he touches the ring, he touches the yellow ring. Of course, not without putting the green rings in his pocket. So it's quite strange that he had to be manipulated into going to the other world. And it's quite strange that, well, it's significant that he was reluctant and that he felt bad about it. And it was also quite a strange succession of circumstances aligning. I mean, it could have been that that day Uncle Andrew wasn't in the room and the kids would have gone in, seen that, well, okay, we're in the wrong place and then we leave, right? So it's quite a curious unfolding of events that happens. So Diggory comes to, and one of the things that has happened to him is that he's forgotten where he's come from. He's forgotten his mission. He's forgotten why he's woken up in this place. And he sort of crawls out of this magical pool, even though he's not really wet from the water. And he sort of looks around and he thinks, wow, everything is very peaceful here. Everything is very quiet. Everything is sort of like this soft enchantment that is all around. And he looks around and he's not really thinking much, and then he notices a small girl, and she's sort of just off in the other way, sort of asleep under a tree somewhere, and he goes over and he says hello, and they sort of just start talking to each other, and they're just sort of talking like they don't know each other, until eventually, after a little while, and sort of just being a little bit dreamy, one of them says to the other, now I think I remember you. I think I, I think I've seen you before. I think I've even met you before. And as it happens, it actually takes quite a while for them to remember where they have come from. Where they have come from had been completely out of their mind completely out of their sense, completely gone from anything that they could imagine or understand. And it's only by talking to each other and actually discussing back and forth that the memories come back and then they figure it out. So they meet up, figure out what they're doing. And of course, the thing is, well, they try to get back. So they put on their green rings and they jump into the pool. But this doesn't work. They work out that that's not exactly what's going on. 
And with a bit more experimentation and a bit more of thinking it through, they work out that, well, yellow is to go in a certain direction and green is to go in a certain direction. And they also realise that this world is not exactly a world. It's almost like a place that isn't a place. And this is the point where Diggory gets the idea. Now, if there's one world, maybe there are other worlds. And he's looking around and he's seeing that this pool, almost like a swimming pool that he's come out of, is not the only one. There are other ones. And he thinks, now, come on, let's explore some of the other worlds. Let's explore some of the things that might be out there. If we can work out how we can get to and back from this world, which they experiment with by actually going in, then why not? Why not explore? Let's find what's here. And so with a little bit of coercion or convincing, Diggory convinces Polly that they actually go to another world. And of course, Polly has the great idea, the brilliant idea of marking which pool is their pool. Now, this is significant because Diggory has this curiosity which is taking him off on this adventure. It's taking him off on this wild place. And Polly is actually still clear-headed enough to be able to say, well, let's be clear about how we're going to get back. And it's lucky that she does because Diggory could have jumped into the pool, forgotten everything, and then not had a way to find which pool is his home pool, or the portal, as we could say, to his original world. So that's something to understand. That's something interesting, which is note how to get back. And actually, the reality of it is when you go to another world, you forget how to get back. You don't know how to come back. (laughs) And that's really also this thing in the character of Uncle Andrew himself, right? Because he sent the guinea pig, but he hasn't been able to bring the guinea pig back because he can't give instructions to the guinea pig. And that's why he's using these children. So, they're getting a hang of it. They've worked out which pool is theirs. And they decide to jump into this just random pool. And they jump in and they come to in a totally different world. And this world is unlike anything they have seen. The sky is different, the buildings are different, the temperature is different, the whole weather, the whole atmosphere is very different. It's actually quite gloomy, it's actually quite dark. And they're sort of quiet and they look around, they can't really see much and there's no one around. And they sort of just think to explore a little bit, so they look out and... Polly sort of thinks, well, there's not much here, let's go. But no, Diggory says, he says exactly this. He says, there's not much point finding a magic ring that lets you enter into other worlds if you're afraid to look around at them once you got there. So Diggory wants to see it with his eyes. He wants to hear it with his ears. He wants to smell it. He wants to perceive it. And he wants to explore. He wants the world to have an impression on him. He actually wants to have experiences in this other world. And that's what makes him such an adventurer. That's what makes him our, really, the lead protagonist that moves the story forward. So they explore a bit more and they come across this old castle. And as they go in, they find what appears to be the most incredible setting of wax people. Do you know what wax people are? These sort of life-size 
models, I guess, or real life, I guess, sort of made to life copy of a real life person, but it's not alive, so they sit exactly still. And in this room, Diggory is having all sorts of openings because it's like, wow, they have these incredible clothes and they're perfectly still. And there's one that he notices, which is right up the front of this hall. And this one looks to be some sort of tall, beautiful woman, someone powerful in clothes he'd never seen before. And they're sort of looking around. And another curious thing comes to Diggory's attention. And this is a bell with a hammer next to it. And he looks very closely at this bell. And he starts to notice that well, there's some sort of writing on it. And as he looks closer, he can make out somehow, he doesn't know how, what the writing means. And the writing has a little bit of a mirror. Uh, it's sort of like a, a riddle or a sort of poem or a sort of a sort of curious in curiosity inducing verse on it, which says something about striking the hammer and finding out, striking the bell, striking the hammer on the bell, finding out what will happen. Or never finding out and living, wondering for the rest of your days. And that's really the that's really the dilemma, isn't it? In that simple image of this bell with this writing on it, with this hammer next to it, it says strike it and find out or live for the rest of your days never knowing what could have been. In that one image, in that one instance, you can really see all of what it means to have curiosity lead you to another world. Now, in Australia, we have this saying, you never, never know if you never, never go. Now, maybe that's not just an Australian saying. Maybe that's something that's known all around the world. But I heard it in Australia. And this gets at the same thing, doesn't it? You really never know unless you do it. And the instructions to find other worlds are written down by those who travel to them and if you follow the instructions you can find the other world you can find what will happen so diggory and polly get into a bit of an argument they actually have a big, bit of a row over this because diggory's like come on i want to i want to strike this bell and polly is sort of thinking now Think this through. You don't know if it's going to be something good that you will like. You don't know if it's going to be something that will help us. You don't know if it could be anything. You know, monsters might come out of anywhere. This is a strange world. Who knows what will happen? And this argument gets quite bitter, you know, because, well, Diggory, he really wants to do it. And in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the argument, he sort of just picks up the bell and hits it. Really quickly, like, huh? I'm going to do it anyway. No, nah, doesn't matter. So it's not out of careful reasoning. It's not out of consideration that he's hit this bell. It's sort of just out of the heat of the moment. And what happens is, well, the bell rings. And it rings and it rings and it rings. And instead of the ring decaying like a normal bell does, Actually, the ring gets louder, and it gets louder and louder and louder, and it becomes so loud that the very walls, the very buildings, the castle around them starts trembling, 
and off in the distance things even start falling in and crumbling. And then the sound changes. The sound turns into a roar. Sounds it turns into a, a kind of gnashing. And all of a sudden they've realized that this queen, this woman, this tall, eloquent figure that was up the front of this hall has come to life. And she sort of comes straight up to them and it's like, whoa, okay, so now what are we going to do? We've got this queen on our hands. And she starts to ask, well, who's woken me? Who has broken this spell? And Diggory goes, well, it was me. I hit the hammer. And she goes, nonsense, you couldn't have done that. You don't have any magic in you. How did you get here? I can see straight away you don't have any magic. And he says, well, uh, well, um, I actually... We came here because Uncle Andrew gave us the magic, so it's his magic. And even this, the Queen doesn't believe. She says, now this isn't right. And she sort of has this grip on the children now. And there's a moment where Polly realises that she can't reach her yellow ring as the Queen holds her. And that's a moment where... You're in this other world, and you realize you're in deep. Already, this queen has come to life, and these children are starting to contend with this character, and they're having to explain themselves, and they don't know what she's doing. And they realize they can't get back easily. So they're in over their heads. And they find out things about the queen as she talks and she says about what's going on, and apparently this world that they're in is very old. And she, this queen, had been at war with her sister. And as it turned out, there is this secret magic, this dark magic, this powerful magic, which is known as the deplorable word. And the queen had discovered this magic. She had discovered the deplorable word. And the deplorable word was that if it was spoken, it would kill all other things apart from the person who had spoken that word. And as the history of this queen comes to light as she talks to these children, it turns out that, well, she'd been in a war with her sister who had sent armies to kill her people. And just in the peak of the moment, the peak of the climax of the battle, the queen had used the deplorable word to kill all things apart from herself. And she said that ours is a high and lonely destiny which is exactly, actually, the words Uncle Andrew had used to describe himself about his magic. And there's something significant about that, which is that the power of magic and the isolation that goes with that needs to be understood. And in both this queen, this dark queen that these children have just met, and Uncle Andrew, we get this sense that their abilities to have magic and to manipulate magic actually sort of draw them away from people. It actually makes them more disconnected and out of touch with their, well, we could say humanness, but it's not exactly humanness because the queen isn't exactly a human but it's more about a well well what could we call it it's like the 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 higher nature or the understanding of connecting with a pure nature and in the queen and in uncle andrew 
it appears that, well, magic doesn't do that. It actually disconnects them from their pure nature. And as the conversation unfolds, well, the queen actually says to the kids, okay, so take me to your world so she can rule it. Okay, so this is what the queen wants. She wants to become the ruler of this world and she finds out that, well, these kids have come from quite a young world and it's like, well, okay, so now our world at home is at stake. So the kids figure out that this is a bad woman. They need to get away from her. And in the heat of the moment, they do escape for a moment and they manage to touch their rings But in the struggle, the queen comes with them and they turn up again in the world which is between the worlds, the world with all the pools. And all of a sudden, this strange thing happens to the queen, which is that she becomes weak. She becomes like she is suffering. She becomes like she is dying. Now, in this world, The between world, the children had felt quite warm. They had felt quite alive, quite peaceful. But here now the queen was weak. And this is a very big contrast to where she was just moments ago in her own world, which was tall, strong, powerful, assertive, this sort of thing, these sorts of characteristics. And this change in the queen from her own world to the world between worlds is a theme that comes up again and again. And it's it's one of the qualities, it's one of the foundational qualities of being put into different contexts or from being put into different worlds, which is that when you're in a different place, you are a different thing. When you're in a different world, your entire sense of what you are, how you feel, your powers, everything is different. And even in this moment, well, what's his name? Diggory has a little bit of pity on the queen. He sort of feels like, oh, I have to empathize for this person who's quite weak. But they escape back to their home and there's another struggle. And, well, this is where things really get crazy because now the children are back in Uncle Andrew's attic and they've brought the queen with them. (laughs) Can you believe it? They turn up. And the queen is now in Uncle Andrew's attic. And, well, the relationship between Uncle Andrew and the kids now has completely shifted. And this is something that Diggory notices straight away. And the way he thinks about it, or the way he puts it, is that, well, he's no longer afraid of Uncle Andrew because of this menacing queen, this menacing character in this woman, who's actually starting to look more like a witch by now than the than a queen. And the way he puts it is that you wouldn't be afraid of a worm after you've met a rattlesnake, right? So think of how it was for Diggory to be in Uncle Andrew's attic before he touched the rings. He was sort of in this bind, right? He felt like he'd been manipulated. He'd had the uncle use his power over him. He'd sort of forced him to do something that he didn't want. And now all of a sudden, he turns up and they're back in the attic and the queen's there and the queen immediately asserts her power over Uncle Andrew. And he sort of becomes this this bumbling like, oh, yes, I will serve you. Let me help you. Whatever you need, I will get it for you. He sort of immediately puts himself under this queen. And she immediately, well, she plays into it too. She's intimidating Andrew. And she pays no attention to the children at all. So, this witch, which we call her now because 
we realize from the way she acts and the way she treats the people around her that she's not so much of a very nice queen. This witch begins making demands and she says, Now, slave, how long do I have to wait for my chariot? And she actually comes down the stairs and bursts out of the house, encountering other people and one of the family members. She actually tries to incinerate with her magic, but she realizes, well, incinerating people is not something that she can do in this world, which she could in the other world, but that doesn't stop her tyranny. It doesn't stop her malice. And she's sort of bursting out and Uncle Andrew is sort of trying to work out, well, how, how can I help her? Or what can I do for her? You know, how do I give her what she wants? And she's making these, these crazy demands like, oh, I need to have slaves and servants and a chariot and let's build an army and I'm going to conquer this world, right? And she sort of bursts out of the house and is just let loose on London. So we've got this, we've got this queen who has come from this other world and she's turned up and she is wreaking havoc. And this is what, well, this is what happens when someone from another world visits. And consider just what happened when Diggory and Polly went to the Queen's world. Consider how it was when it was the other way around. When Diggory turned up, he struck that hammer, and that caused all of this chaos to ensue. It caused all of the buildings to crumble. And now it's like, well, it's the other way around. Now the queen is wreaking havoc in Diggory and Polly's world. So, Polly goes home. We don't know where the queen's off to. The Queen and Uncle Andrew. Then Polly goes back to her parents for dinner. And she sort of, <laughs> well, she sort of tries to explain, right? I've been jumping in a pool in a forest somewhere, which I didn't know where it was. And basically, Polly's parents just figure, well, she's been off in a park somewhere, right? So she's a naughty kid for going somewhere that she didn't know. But they can't even grapple with you know but it's not like Polly's even trying to explain that there's another world she doesn't even know she, she doesn't even know how to begin to explain that she's been to another world so it doesn't get through to Polly's parents what's going on and Diggory he has this moment where he's actually sitting and listening to another family member as they have dinner and another thing you, you need to understand is that Diggory's mother is a little bit unwell. She's actually sick at the moment. And one of the family members is sort of having dinner and talking about how Diggory's mother is unwell. And they say something like, well, what she needs is something from another world. And now usually that sort of talk for Diggory is just, well, what adults talk about, things that don't really have any meaning. But now he realized, ah, she needs something from another world. And now he knows, well, actually, there are other worlds, and he knows this because he's been to one. And as he's thinking this through, he starts to hope. There's something in him, this, this burning hope, this sense of possibilities which is that actually maybe there's something in these other worlds that could make his mother well again. And he thinks about this for quite some time. And it's almost sort of like at times he doesn't want to think about it because it's such a far-fetched hope. He doesn't want to have that hope crushed. But still, he can't help think about it. Now, after some time, my goodness, you will not believe what's happened. After some time, a few hours go by, the queen turns up again. Now, this is unprecedented. She turns up in the midst of a crowd, right? There are police 
There are, there are horse cart drivers. There are people watching on. And she has stolen a horse, robbed a jewelry store, beaten someone up, and actually started taking all these things and wreaked all this havoc all over London and is now running back to where she was at Uncle Andrew's house. And Uncle Andrew, well, he's sort of tagging along in this ball of chaos. It's almost like a riot is breaking out around this queen. And she's on this horse and she's got this jewelry on her and the man she's robbed and beaten is sort of chasing after and all the police are after her. And she gets to the house and, well, what she does is she actually, this is incredible, she climbs up a lantern and pulls off the bar on its side and starts hitting people over the head with it, right? Now, let me explain. In London, in those days, the street lamps, well, they weren't electricity. They'd actually be lanterns. So what you'd have is this bar that pokes out to the side, you know, like a, like a sort of like a batoon that a police officer has. And that would be for the lantern people to rest their ladder on it so they could climb up the lantern, a street lamp, light it, and then climb down. Now, this is made of steel, right? This is solid steel. And the queen has reached up and pulled it straight off like a twig with a snap, right? So she's got this metal bar riding on a horse that she's stolen with jewellery all over her that she's stolen, inside this rioting crowd that is trying to sort of stay away from her, but also capture her and say, what are you doing? And she's hitting people over the head with it. This is chaos. This is complete chaos. Now, Diggory is looking at all this, and he's thinking, well, we've got to do something about this. We've got to take her back to her world. And he's figured out by now that if he touches the ring while he's touching her, that'll do it. That's how she came along with them in the first place, right? So he takes a few swipes at her and she kicks him off. But eventually he manages to sort of do this heroic dive and jump onto the queen and transport her to the world between worlds. And through all of the chaos, through all of the confusion, well, a few people come along with them, right? <laughs> so now we're in the world of worlds, the world between worlds, and the horse is there. And not only the horse is there, but the caddy is there. So the caddy is the one who drives the horses. And not only that, but Uncle Andrew's there. And not only that, but Polly is there. So we got Polly, Uncle Andrew, the witch, the horse, Diggory, and the caddy, all in this world of worlds. And they figure, well, why don't we just drop her off in one of these pools, in one of these other worlds? And they note that she's sick again now that she's in the in-between worlds. So they all figure it out, and they jump into this world. They jump into the one of the pools. And they sort of come to, but there's only darkness. So this strange group of people are in this place and it's sort of formless. They couldn't really see what's happening. And after a few moments, they start to hear a sound. And that sound is sort of like the singing of a song, a distant song. And it slowly becomes louder and louder. And soon more voices start to join until it's sort of like this heavenly choir is singing in the distance. And slowly, out of darkness, subtle light starts to appear and then forms start to appear and then distances and lands 
start to appear. And slowly they start to see that a world is coming into shape. And as things unfold, there are new things springing to life all over the place. New trees, new mountains, new rivers, new gullies, new plants of all sorts. And Diggory and all these people are watching along in amazement. This world is coming out of nowhere, and all this time the song sings on as this world is coming to life, as if the song is bringing the world to life. Now, as things continue to unfold, they notice in the distance that there is a lion. And this lion, they notice, has his mouth open. And after a few moments of watching this lion, Diggory and, well, some of his friends work out that the song is coming from this lion's mouth. This lion is singing this world into existence. And now there are animals coming out. And, well, what happens? The animals come up and start greeting this lion. And he starts giving them a blessing. And there are all sorts of animals in all sorts of shapes. And as this unfolding of this new world reaches its climax, the lion ends this song and opens his mouth to speak. And he says, Narnia, Narnia, love, think, speak. And that is the birth of the new world of Narnia. And no sooner has this happened that the witch sees this lion and she's still got the metal bar in her hand. And what does she do? She throws it right at the lion and it hits this lion right in the middle of the eyes, right on the forehead. And she's quite strong. It was quite a heavy throw. And anyone would have expected it to kill the lion. But as it happened, well, the lion sort of didn't do anything. He just sort of didn't even notice. And the bar just sort of fell down and it's almost like nothing happened at all. And... Curiously, where the bar fell, well, very quickly, a lamppost started to grow. So the uncle is looking around and he's starting to think, wow, this is amazing. We can make lots of money from this. We can actually bring machines and they'll grow and then we'll transport them back to the other world. And we'll be able to sell them, right? So he's still thinking about himself. And Diggory is thinking about his mum. He's thinking, well, maybe in this place I can find the sort of thing from the other world that will do her some good. And also, we realise that the animals are talking. So one of the animals has this funny thing where He sort of gets hit by a branch and he says, oh, does that mean I made the first joke in Narnia? And then Aslan says, no, you haven't made the first joke. You are the first joke. (laughs) And then everyone laughs again. So that's important. That's important to understand, which is that the world is founded on a joke. It's founded on laughter. And Aslan even says, don't be so solemn. He's given these animals the ability to speak. And yet, it's still important to have a laugh. It's still important to have a joke.
So I think there's quite a lot in just that one insight. I think there's really, well, I, I see it as, as both. I see it as the small insight, which would be don't forget to have a laugh, and the large insight, which would be the world is founded on a joke. The very first thing that happens is a joke. And I think, well, I feel both of those are true. Of course, having a laugh or putting things off and shaking things off as a joke can be a kind of defense. There's a kind of shallowness to that. If you're always denying your shadow or denying your feelings or trying to turn things into a joke, that's like a nervous laugh, right? That's not very pretty. That's not very understanding. But also, that isn't to say that we should diminish this insight, this small insight, which is that you do need to have a laugh every now and then. You do need to have a joke. Don't be so solemn. And as for the foundation of the universe, yeah, the foundation of the world, and, and really in the case of Narnia, the world is the universe, being a joke, then, well... I think there's a lot of bridge that needs to be made in order to reach that. I think that is a very high-level realization that doesn't come without really a miracle happening. And I say that because... It can't come about through your own effort. It can't come about through your own work, right? You can't earn a joke. You can't build a joke. Now, in the sense of the comedian, well, the comedian builds the joke, but you don't experience a joke as a joke is meant to be experienced as a comedian. I mean you can't build a joke and experience it as a joke in the same way that you build all other things. So it's really quite a miracle to have that realization. And I can say it to you now, right? I mean, you can just say the words, look, the universe is a joke. That's just the words. But the realization, to have it, well, in the real meaning of the sense, realization, which is real eyes Asian which is real perception happening so real eyes Asian shun is doing or action words eyes is perception seeing and real is real reality then to have the realization that the world is a joke, well, that, that is something so profound. That is something truly gargantuan. And there's no method for it. There's no thing that I can say, well, do these techniques to receive it. Do these techniques to have it. It's really something you, well, it's, it's, it's a miracle that happens. It's a miracle that happens. And of course, there are certain things you can do that would make that miracle more likely. And there are certainly things that you can do that will make that miracle impossible. So don't think that it's so simple. Don't think that it's so... And, and even in that, you see, even in that is a trick because it is so simple. It is so simple. A joke is always simple. The best jokes are always simple. Can you, can you think of a joke which is, which is complex? If a joke is complex, it's not funny, right? You can't have an elaborate explanation to a joke to make you laugh, right? I can't, I can't ever think of a joke that's made me laugh which is 
elaborate and complex, like a philosophy or a theory or an idea or even a story. So I think that's probably going to be enough for today. We've just witnessed the birth of Narnia and what a glorious birth it is. So we'll find out what happens to Diggory and his friends as he's found himself in the midst of all this in the next episode. So thanks very much for tuning in. And we'll be back very soon with our next episode in the series. That's all I have to say for now.